0: around God's Word. I'm grateful that we get to gather together in the presence of God. So if you have your Bible, I invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11 is where we're going to be spending our time together this morning. And I, I don't know about you, but for me, one of the things that has really snuck up on me this year is... Easter, like, like, I, I, it feels like it just sprung up out of nowhere. I mean, it actually took me, uh, going to the grocery store, getting a free bag of chocolate to actually realize, oh yeah, Easter is, is next Sunday. And, and that's a little bit sad. I mean, if Easter really is this high point in our Christian calendar, if, Easter is really ground zero. If celebrating the death and resurrection is the thing that gives us meaning and purpose, and it gives us hope, and it gives us eternal life, it's a little bit sad that Good Friday and Easter Sunday came out of nowhere. No, 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 I get it. One of the reasons it's kind of snuck up is because of this coronavirus. I get it. We we haven't been able to to go to the mall and see the bunnies and the chocolates and the eggs. I, that's not Easter, but it was a reminder. And so we don't. We're not seeing those pictures. We're not gathering together in churches. We're not encouraging and kind of hyping each other up for the celebration. And and rightly so, the churches actually had to pause and and talk about COVID-19. It's had to talk. talk. Talk about how we should respond to the illness. So I get it. There's reasons for why Easter snuck up on us this year. But I think then it's time we turn our gaze back to this celebration. What I want to do this morning is actually look at one of the major and kind of typical Palm Sunday messages. I want to look at the triumphal entry. Now, now, before you're like, hold on, hold on, this passage seems a little bit out of place. I, I don't think this is really relevant. I mean, all you have to do is go to verse eight and, and read most of the crowd. Just stop there. Obviously not self-isolating. <laughs> Guarantee you that's not groups of 10 or less. Before you're like, this is nothing to do with what we're dealing with this morning. Can't we talk about something a little bit more relevant? L- let me, let me tell you why I think it's important we look at this passage this morning. You see, one of the things that Holy Week, the week leading up to and including the death and resurrection of Jesus is made to imitate is the coronation of a Roman emperor. When a new Roman emperor was going to be crowned, they would go through these stations. And so the emperor would come in. He would be anointed just as Jesus was anointed the week before his death. The, the, the new emperor would kind of make a new covenant with his people just as our Jesus makes a covenant during the Lord's Supper, the new covenant to put his Holy Spirit In us, a a new emperor would be crowned and given royal attire, just as Jesus was given a purple robe and a, and a crown of thorns. And then that new Roman emperor would rise up on the throne. And just as Jesus would raise, be raised up on the cross. And as Augustine put it, who else reigns from a wooden cross? None other than Jesus. And, and so you see, Easter is not just about atonement. Easter isn't just about forgiveness of sins. It is that, absolutely. But more than that, Easter is about the coronation of our King. And if there's a message... That I need to hear today that we, that you at home sitting on your couch need to hear today. It is this, that there is a king on the throne and that he is all-powerful that nothing is outside of his command. We need to hear that there is a king who, though he doesn't stop the coronavirus, is sustaining those who are living in the midst of this virus. We need to hear that this king is using all of this for our good. And we need to hear that there is a king who can overcome death itself. That's why I want to stop and have us think about those events that took place nearly 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. And so starting at the very front of that Holy Week, that first station of the coronation of the King is the triumphal entry. So if you have your Bible, please read it with me. Matthew 21 verses 1 to 11. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coal, the beast of a burden. Who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, the first station, the first step of the way when a new Roman emperor would be crowned was his journey into the city upon which he would reign. And so that's what's happening here. Jesus is traveling into Jerusalem and his subjects are praising him. Now, Jesus' entry—now, he had done this many times before—but this final entry into Jerusalem marks the beginning of Jesus's endgame. In chess, near the end of the match, when there are few and less pieces on the board, you begin what is called the end game. Now, during this time, your strategy has to change a little bit. And actually, instead of being cautious, you actually have to take a few risks. You see, you could be dominating the rest of the game, but at the end, if you don't have a good end game, if you don't have that right strategy, when it all comes down to it, most of the time, the match will end up in a draw or worse, a loss. And so Jesus is now no longer going to play it safe. Now before this, Jesus didn't exactly play it safe, but he was cautious about how quickly he would reveal himself, how quickly he would disclose his identity. So in Matthew chapter 8, for example, we hear this story. Matthew 8, 1 to 4. When he came down, that's Jesus. When Jesus came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will. Out of his hand and touched him, saying, sorry, I will. Be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now listen to this. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. Now that is the total opposite of what a politician would do. Something great happens and they're capitalizing on it right then and there. Go tweet this out. I'm going to go on every social media platform. I'm going to make sure everyone knows I just healed the leper. But Jesus says, hold up don't tell anyone what I did to you. Why would he do that? It was because if Jesus doesn't conceal his identity or he doesn't reveal his identity at a slow enough pace, the crowds will kill him. Events will transpire quicker than they need to. And there's certain things that Jesus has to do before that time. He has to teach his disciples. He has to heal some people. He has to cast out some more demons. He has to clarify some things for us. And so Jesus is saying, slow down. I'm kind of going cautiously about how quickly I'm revealing things. But now, all of a sudden, comes Palm Sunday, and Jesus says, okay— Now's my time. This is, this is the start of my end game. Now is when I reveal who I really am. And so if Holy Week is the kindling upon which Good Friday and that log, that cross will go on and burn for three days, well then Palm Sunday is the match that starts it all. And how do you light a fire in Jerusalem in the first century, you tell them that you're a king. And so that's what Jesus does. And even without the context of this coronation of a new Roman emperor by Jesus's actions, we see is that is what he's trying to communicate. So look at verse one again. It says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem. So it's, it's the Passover. This is kind of the, the high point in the Jewish, uh, calendar. This is when all Jews were supposed to travel into Jerusalem and they were going to celebrate the time when God freed them from Egypt, when, when he performed that great exodus and, and brought them out of slavery. And so Jesus, we're told, is making the trip from Galilee. This is a five day trip. He was go, he's coming south and the crowds are kind of snowballing. The farther he goes, it seems like the more and more people are following him. And so keep going. And so he comes to Bethpage to the Mount of Olives. Now this is on the east side of Jerusalem. There's kind of a valley in between the Mount of Olives and uh, Jerusalem. And so you can actually, from this point, see the temple. You could see the city. You can see the crowds clearly. And Jesus then says, okay, two disciples— Go. Go in the, go in front of you, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Uh, Untie them and, and bring them to me, Jesus says. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now, just so you're clear, this is not prescriptive, like you're caught empty-handed or, or, or hands full with some hand sanitizer and some toilet paper, and you just say, the Lord needs them. I don't know why I did that. It's like the force, like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You, the Lord needs them. You will you will let me go. This is not what's happening here. Most likely, Jesus has, has kind of prearranged, or these people know who Jesus is, and so they're going to let him borrow this donkey and the colt. Here's my question for you is, why does Jesus ride on a donkey and a colt? I mean, nowhere else are we told in the Bible that Jesus rode any animal. He walks. He, he walks with his disciples everywhere. He walks with the crowd. And, and why a donkey and a colt? See, Last year, my family and I spent our time in Kentucky, and we had the chance to visit Churchill Downs. This is where they hold the Kentucky Derby, which is happening, supposed to be happening right, right around now. And so we're going down there, and the way it kind of works is before the race happens, all the horses are kind of paraded around a circle in in front of these crowds. And you look at these honestly magnificent beasts. They are absolutely ripped. Like you see their muscular structure, and you, at that point, you go like, oh, that horse looks good. I'm betting on that one. Except once in a while, you kind of see a dud. They're, they're trying to test out a horse, or they're maybe trying to test out a jockey and so a horse comes walking around with like three feet, for example. No, that's not, that's not the case, but you just tell there's, they're weak. They're, they don't match up to the other animals. I'm telling you what's not happening right then and there is people are not running to the betting boxes and going, Oh yeah, yeah give me the horse with the three legs. Th- that's, that's the one I'm cheering for. No, you, you cheer for the one that looks magnificent. Well, Jesus is riding on, in essence, a a three-legged horse. He's he's riding on this wimpy little donkey, on, on a colt, on a baby donkey. And yet, the crowds are cheering. How come? It's because the crowds understand what Jesus is telling them, what Jesus is trying to communicate by actually riding on the horse. So look at verse 4. When Jesus rides on the donkey, it says, This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of... Burden. That verse, verse four, is a quote of Zechariah nine nine. And that verse is telling us that the king, the long awaited king of Israel, would come riding on a donkey and the crowds knew it. And and you want further evidence they knew it? Just look at verse 9. It says this, and the crowds that went before him and that follow him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. That title, son of David, is a title of a king. See, David was the prototypical ideal king in the Old Testament. It was under King David that Israel experienced their greatest physical prosperity as well as their greatest spiritual prosperity. And we're told that God makes a promise to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne. That one of David's offspring would be king. And so the crowd is saying, this is the one. This one riding in a donkey. This is the king that comes from the line of David that we've been waiting for. Israel, behold your king. Now, Matthew, though, wants to clarify what type of king Jesus will be. And so I just want to pause just for a second and just think about something we've already looked at. That prophecy that Zechariah makes in Zechariah 9.9, 9, quoted here in verse 4, takes place 500 years before Jesus. David, and the promise made to David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne, takes place 1,000 years before Jesus. And yet they are filled perfectly in Jesus. Jesus. Just just think of all that has to happen for this fulfillment to take place perfectly. Jesus has to be born from Mary and Joseph, both coming from the line of David. Jesus has to arrive in Jerusalem the week of Passover. Jesus has to make sure that there is a donkey and a colt there, just up ahead of him in the village so that he can ride one of them. There has to be both a donkey adult and a colt because if Jesus just rides the colt, the donkey or the colt will uh, freak out if the donkey's not there. Jesus has to make sure that this colt has never been ridden on all to fulfill these two prophecies. 1,000 years of history in the works all lining up perfectly in Jesus. The triumphal entry, it is none other than a blatant and obvious declaration that Jesus is sovereign. That he is not just king, but he is king of kings. That he is Lord of lords. That there is nothing outside of his control. See, this is what I know about all governments, all government officials right now. They all have this one thing in common. They are all reacting. They are all looking at what is going on around them and they are reacting. They're trying to fix things as they go. But Jesus... For one thousand years at least in the making is not reacting, he's planning, he is fulfilling, he is using everything exactly to plan. As Ephesians one eleven says, God works all things according to the counsel of his. There is not a single molecule, there is not a single virus that is out of place right now in the world. See, I don't know how Jesus is using the events that are going on around us right now. I don't know how job loss, loss of loved ones, loneliness, boredom... or or other things like the missionary movement in the world right now, the inability for us to send missionaries to the unreached people groups around the world, the, the danger that missionaries are in, in India, for example, unable to get out, whose lives are at risk, who are trying to minister the gospel to those who need a savior. I don't know how any of that is being used by God right now, but I am told in the triumphal entry that there is a reason that he is in control. Everything went according to plan 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday, and everything is going according to plan Palm Sunday today. Jesus is king, and he is king over it all. But look how then he uses his sovereignty. Verse 5. Again, it says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went, and they did just as Jesus directed them. And so they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Matthew is telling us that Jesus is the sovereign king who seeks to make none other than peace. He's the king who offers peace. Now, we know this, I mean, most obviously, I think many of us may have heard this, because Jesus decides to ride on a donkey instead of a war horse. You see, when a nation was under threat, when a king was under attack, he would ride a war horse. That horse was a symbol of the king's power and might. It was supposed to serve as a threat to anyone who was a, would oppose the king. But in times of peace, that king would get off his war horse and he would ride around a donkey. That donkey was a sign that things were all right, that the king wanted to reconcile and be at peace with his civilians. But maybe less familiar to us is that Zechariah 9.9 not only looks forward to Jesus' triumphal entry, it most likely points back to actually another event that took place in the life of David. Zechariah 9.9 probably describes a situation that occurs in 2 Samuel chapter 19. In 2 Samuel chapter 19, We're told of a story where David, the rightful king of Israel, is kind of pushed off of his throne. Absalom, his son, rebels and strips his own father of the throne. And so David is kind of forced out of Israel, and so then David has to gather up an army again, and and then he goes back to war, and he fights against Absalom, and, and he wins, and his son is is killed and so David then is traveling back to Jerusalem to retake the throne. Now what would normally happen here is David would come in riding on a horse, sword in hand, and he would kill, he would slaughter everyone who rebelled against him. Anyone who tried to usurp the throne and, and, and push him out of the city would be killed. But that's actually not what David does. Listen how he treats someone by the name of Shemai who helped commit treason against David. Second Samuel 19, starting in verse 18. "And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shammai, the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And he said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty. Or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord, the king, left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord, the king. And Abishai, who's a supporter of David this whole time, the son of Zariah answered, shall not Shammai be put to death for this? Because he cursed, he overthrew the Lord's anointed one. But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Shammai you son of Zariah, that you should this day be an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Instead of revenge... David offers reconciliation. Instead of punishment, he offers peace. And now, when Jesus is riding into Jerusalem once more, this son of David offers the same thing. He offers forgiveness. He doesn't destroy his enemies by killing them, but instead by turning foe to friend. See, here's what I know. I know that many of you listening at home right now, one of the only reasons you're streaming this sermon, this service, is because your world is falling apart. Your life is crumbling and you realize that you need help. And so you wonder, Maybe Christianity, maybe Jesus is my solution to all that is going on around me. And yet deep inside, you also wonder whether or not Jesus will take you, whether he'll take you back, whether your rebellion will be held against you. And the answer is no. The answer is, today he offers peace. So come to Jesus. Come just like Shammai. Come knowing that you have wronged the king. Come knowing that you have lived in your rebellion and fall flat on your face and say, Lord, would you have me? Would you be at peace with me? But I know there's also another option you're considering. The other option is to try and take back your throne. You see, you may feel dethroned right now, but you've just decided, okay, I'm just going to make it through this time. I'll I'll use whatever resources are available to me. Uh, I'll get that EI paycheck. I'll drink a little bit of more alcohol. I'll become an abusive parent so that my children are under control. I will just get through this time and at the end, when I'm allowed to go back living my life, I'll retake my throne. How's that working for you? How How's being the king of your own life going for you? H- how did it work out for you this time? I'm a little bit surprised that I... Uh, will ever mutter these words, but I watched a documentary about a man who owned over 200 wild exotic cats. Okay. I don't know if you've seen this. It's kind of the, the craze going on right now. And by the way, I do not endorse this show. Uh, it is called Tiger King. Okay. There it is about this man. His name is Joe. Uh, he, legally changed his last name to Exotic. So his name is Joe Exotic, and he kind of owns these these tigers and these lions and he breeds ligers yes those are those are real things and and he's kind of set himself up to be this tiger king he kind of rules his own empire he kind of rules over his staff who are trying to make sure that these tigers are well taken care of he kind of dresses himself in these crazy attire he actually has a mullet he has this whole persona he is king and kind of the constant battle during this documentary is between Joe Exotic and this woman named Carol Baskin. And, and, and Carol Baskin is kind of this animal rights person and, and she's essentially trying to fight to have these animals taken away from Joe Exotic. And so Joe Exotic feels threatened. And, and, and he kind of is always, always, trying to protect his throne. And he just keeps pushing the envelope bit by bit. First, he copies the very logos that... Carol Baskin is using in his own kind of zoo and and so that people instead of being directed to the animal rights group they're kind of directed to his propaganda website and so Carol sues him and that makes him even more mad and it kind of just grows and grows and grows until finally Joe Exotic essentially tries to pay someone to have Carol killed. And when that happens, the feds hear about it. Joe's taken to court, he's sentenced, and all that he has is taken away from him. It's, it's actually a pretty sad moment in the show when all of Joe's life is crumbling. Here's what I, I'm just thinking during that show is, why didn't you just make peace So many times you had the opportunity to get out, to relinquish control. If only you could step down from your throne, everything would have been different. Look, the same invitation is being given to you today. Step down from your throne and let Jesus take his rightful place you are not greater than justice. And look, if you do not find peace now, there will come a time, a day when Jesus will ride in again, not offering peace, but bringing condemnation and judgment. Today is the day to reconcile, to make peace with the rightful King of this world. But there's one more aspect of Jesus's kingship that Matthew wants to highlight for us this morning. And that is that Jesus is king of the lowly. Look at verse 8 again. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Again, this is not prescriptive. The crowd is acting like a bunch of adolescent boys right now, taking off their clothes, climbing trees, ripping down branches. But but what they're essentially trying to do is create a makeshift red carpet for their king. But they don't just put down a red carpet. They also kind of play walkout music for Jesus. So verse nine says, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now, one of the, um, things i watched on tv a lot about tv this morning and you're getting a lot about my uh viewing history here when i was a child a little bit ashamed of this is i watched wrestling not not like olympic wrestling but like the fake stuff Like the WWE. Anyways, I had a favorite wrestler. His name was The Undertaker. And you always knew when The Undertaker was walking into the arena, right? Like the the lights would actually go black for a moment. And then you kind of hear the chimes that went off. And it was this music that y'all would play. It would be like, jing anyways, it sounded way better than that. It was pretty intimidating, but I knew the moment I heard those noise what was coming. The undertaker was essentially walking into the arena, and he was going to exact his revenge. He was going to destroy his opponent it was It was amazing. Well, right now, the crowd are essentially playing jesus 's Walkout music. They're yelling, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That phrase, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, is a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm that would be sung celebrating Israel's freedom from slavery. It was a song that they would sing to remember the fact that God brought them out of Egypt, that he did this amazing work, that he destroyed his enemies to give them a greater life. Well, the crowds are essentially saying, Jesus is coming to do the same thing. Jesus is coming to save us from our oppressor. Jesus is coming to bring us freedom. My question though is, who gets the privilege of laying down these robes? Who Who's actually the one who is singing these songs? Who Who makes up the crowd? You see, the crowd is not this perfect cross-section of Israel. There's actually a special or unique people group that make up this crowd. So look at verse 10. It says when he, so when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up and the whole city is saying, who is this? So people in Jerusalem don't know who Jesus is. They're not sure who it is that the crowd's cheering for. But, but who does know? Who who does understand his identity? It says, well, the crowds, those who are following Jesus said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. How do they know that Jesus is from Nazareth of Galilee? Well, it's because they themselves are from Galilee. You see, they are the ones that have been following Jesus. They've witnessed the miracles. They've seen the demons cast out. They've heard his teaching. They've, they've been there firsthand with Jesus, experiencing his blessing in their life. And so these Galileans are welcoming their king into Jerusalem. They're cheering for him and they're saying, this one is not only from Galilee. This one has come to save Galilee. He's one of us, they're saying. You see, Galileans were despised. They were the Equivalent of Jewish hillbillies. They they lived away from Jerusalem, which was not a good thing if you were a devout Jew. You needed to be near the city of Jerusalem to in order to attend all of the the festivals and celebrations. And so many of these Galileans wouldn't make it back. It was the journey was it was too difficult. It took them too long. These, these Galileans have accents. They don't sound like the Jewish people thought they should sound. These Galileans live amongst the Gentiles. They're kind of thought to be, in many cases, Roman sympathizers. They're not adhering to the strict Jewish law. And so these Galileans, they're the lowly. They're the downcast ones. They're the outcast of society. And yet... They are saying, Jesus has come to save us. They're saying, he not only saves us, he belongs to us. If I'm honest, this time of shelter at home, kind of living in self-isolation has been quite difficult for me. I've actually found that a lot of my idols, these things that I've hold far too dearly have have been threatened, and it's actually caused me to lash out in sinful ways. I've become very angry recently. I've become impatient. My my anxiety has risen. And, And deep down, it's caused a lot of just like, fire and burning in my heart. And, and I think some of that might be good because some of it is a, uh, is a realization of my sin. But part of that has also been wrong because it, it's caused me to realize that I have been trying to work for my own identity. I have tried to earn my eternal inheritance. I've been living so that I can kind of come to Jesus with this perfect report card and he will say okay yes that's good you you can be part of my people and it, it's it's just been this dark realization and it's frustrated me that I'm not further along like how long do I have to be following you Jesus to finally be Done with these difficult times and and situations. How long do I have to carry this sin in my life, Lord? See, one of the deep and precious reminders that I've needed from this passage is that Jesus actually came to save Galileans. He came to save people whose lives aren't all perfect and neat and tidy. He came to save the lowly, the sinner, the reject, the one who doesn't live up. Now, I know maybe you're not struggling in this season with your own sin like I am, but maybe you're struggling with other identity crisis issues. Maybe you've lost your job and you've begun to doubt your self-worth. You really do feel as though maybe you are unessential. You you wonder what purpose and, and and value you have. You maybe you feel shame even unable to take care of your family, to provide for them in this season, having to rely on other people for your financial well-being. Maybe you've been pursuing this endeavor, you've been trying to grow something, build something. Maybe, maybe it's even some sort of area of, of self-improvement and that's been cut on or cut off and, and, and put on hold and you, you're not seeing growth in your life. And so, so you realizing that maybe there you're not who you should be. You, you don't value, have the value you think you have. Or, or maybe you've been having all this extra time at home, you and your spouse are there, and now you realize, oh, it's it's not actually that we haven't had enough time together. It's actually deeper than that. Our, our, our marriage is not what it should be. Or maybe you're realizing with all this extra time at home, it's it's not the teacher's fault. <laughs> it. it it's actually, maybe your parenting. Your, your children are not perfect because you are not this perfect parent. And so you're, you're wrestling with identity issues, with self-worth issues. Look, you need to hear this. Jesus came to save those who are from Galilee. He didn't come to save those who had their lives all put together, all neat and tidy, who didn't think they needed any help. He didn't come to save the religious elites, the Pharisees who live not just by the law, but even the layer of protection behind the law. He didn't come to save those people. He came to save those who recognize their need for a savior. This coronavirus has laid all of your life on the table. The, the, the cards are up, so to speak, and, and you have a pair of threes at best. You, you don't live up to your expectations or the world's expectations, but Jesus says, that's okay. Because your value doesn't come from something inherent. It comes from the fact that I am the king and that you belong to me. You're part of his kingdom. And that is good enough. That's all the value and self-worth you need. And so look, if you are recognizing that you are falling short, again, the call upon your life from this passage is turn to Jesus. Acknowledge the fact that you have lived in rebellion and instead Put your trust in the one who is righteous on your behalf. Put the one who lives a perfect life for you. Look, Palm Sunday is the start of Jesus's endgame. But there's something really interesting about the endgame in chess. You see, while a king, for the most part, in the game of chess, sits back, and is quite actually weak and needs to kind of use his pawns and other people or uh, players to kind of defend him. While he is willing to like sacrifice a pawn, a knight, a rook, even his queen to make it out alive. At the end, in the end game, the king actually tends to move out into the middle of the board. And the king actually becomes quite Powerful. Well, look, in Jesus's end game, he doesn't sacrifice his pawns. He doesn't use others for his own benefit. Instead, he steps out right at the beginning and he lays down his own life. And so where is the victory? When does that come? Well, it comes three days later when that king who's lying face down on the chessboard comes back to life and all his other pieces rise with him. And that is what we are getting ready to celebrate one week from today. Behold your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did not sit back. Lord, that you willingly and purposefully rode into Jerusalem, Lord, that you set a match to that city. Why? So that you could hang on the cross. Lord, that cross not only is your rightful coronation, Lord, it is our hope. It is our rescue. It is the reality that our sins, our shortcomings have been taken from us. And instead, you have given us your perfect life. We are credited with your righteousness. And so, Lord, excite us. Prepare us, Lord, for what is about to come. Lord, may we dive deep in your word and find life as we walk through the events of Holy Week. Lord, get us excited for not just Good Friday, but Easter Sunday when we cry out, Lord, with all Christians over this earth, all hail King Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.